Nightmerica is an independently produced podcast. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash nightmerica. And please tell your friends about us. Welcome to Nightmerica, a podcast that takes you on a tour of the abnormal, paranormal, weirdly true, and truly weird in every corner across this nation. Because, to paraphrase Ray Parker Jr., whether it's ghosts, aliens, monsters, or monstrous humans, there's something strange in your neighborhoods. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Episode 28, An American Vampire. It's not really a super catchy title. Maybe it'd be like, Vampires Don't Suck. But that's kind of on the nose. It's kind of on the nose, and my vampire really sucks as a human. And, well, my vampire story sucks for other reasons. But, okay, so vampires suck. <gasps> we'll just go the other direction. Yeah. But the So, well, I mean, people should probably know who we are. If, they, if this is their first time listening to this podcast, because they want to tune in to learn about true crime and paranormal and sometimes paranormal-themed true crime, I'm Aaron Sagers, and I'm from Paranormal Caught on Camera and Paranormal Pop Culture, and as always, joined by my awesome co-host, Britt. Hey, guys. Thanks You're for Britt. I'm Britt. Thanks for listening in for however you found us. Let us know however you found us, but welcome. And if this is your first time, you know, I think that is a, we're going to get into the larger topic of the news and everything, but this is sort of, it's Halloween season as we're mm-hmm. recording this. Makes me a little sad because I'm a big summer fan, child of summer, love the summer, but Labor Day has passed and now we're officially in the spooky season. Spooky season, this is my season. I have a pot of chili bubbling on the stove right this second. I got a new pack of incense. I'm wearing a sweater. Like this is my time to be alive. I am a fall girl. You are a fall girl. I am not a fall guy. Except for the 80s TV series Fall Guy starring Lee Majors about a stuntman who is also a bounty hunter. I wish I was that kind of fall guy. But, I mean, I like autumn. I'm, I can get into the autumnal I'm surprised spirit. you're not... I mean, I know that you're a tiki person, but I'm surprised you're not more into it being that your birthday is in November. I, I do. I do like the fall. I do like autumn. I'm just more of a child of summer. Mm-hmm. But since they are next to each other, I can... I mean, I always go, I always go tiki, I always go summer, but I can merge those two loves together a little bit in the September, October, November time. And yeah, it's a good time to eat some chili, mm-hmm. make some pumpkin pie. Are there pumpkin tiki drinks? Can we I, record in person at some point and have pumpkin tiki drinks? I will have to explore that because... I think it could quickly get a little bit nasty, but you could, you could do some cider with rum. I that mean, would be good. And and there are Halloween tiki drinks where you can use some charcoal to create like a nice mm. dark color, and you can use some bubbly drinks uh, like a dry ice. There's 
there's a, there are a lot of Halloween themed tiki drinks. Pumpkin, I would have to explore a little bit more, but yeah, I'll I'll do some homework on That'd that. That'd be fun. But yeah, so we're going to be really kind of leaning heavily into the autumnal Halloweeny vibe over these next couple episodes, which even means breaking the formula a little bit. We've been doing this long enough. 28 episodes. We can we can make our own rules. We can Heck break yeah. the rules. And so normally what? We do destination-based topics. Yep. And we're going a little bit bigger, a little bit broader this time. We're doing, like, themes. Yeah. So Is your vampire in America, or are you really breaking the rules? No, no, no. I'm okay, keep, it's okay. Night, it's Nightmarica. I'm keeping it in <laughs> America, although... My va- I, I have, I've mentioned the story before, or in this podcast before, that I have spent a lot of time in Romania. I know, that's and... why I asked. Can we do that for our mini-sode this week? And we could talk about my travels in Romania. They, yeah, I mean, I didn't actually encounter a vampire in Romania. That Spoiler you know alert. of. That I know of. But, I mean, I certainly have I had some spooky experiences over there. But, well... Before we get too deep into the topic, let's talk a little bit about some news stories from the world of the weird this week. I hope we don't have the same news story. We should have compared notes. We definitely but... don't. Oh, okay. Well, what's what's your what's your story? So my story is that at the beginning of the month, a federal bomb squad was sent to Berlin to investigate a styrofoam box that was abandoned on a train in Heidelberg. Ominous, lonely box had three vials of liquid in it and set quite an alarm to those around it because of what's been going on in the world right now. Forensic specialists were deployed, investigated the fluid to find it was... What are you going to guess? P. Genetic material from hamsters. That was going to be my next <laughs> guess. I always go straight to P and then after P it's, it's hamster. I love hamsters. I love that, like, bomb squads and forensic specialists were all brought in because they thought this was some, like, weapon of war. And then it turns out to just be DNA from a hammy. Um, To be fair, you don't know that it's not a weapon of war. Somebody could be trying to create mutant weaponized hamsters as as their minions. Oh, let me tell you. I grew up with hamsters. I grew up in apartments. I am a hamster girl. I have had three. I am desperate for another one, but I live in a studio apartment and they're nocturnal. But one of my hamsters was absolutely a weapon of war. She bit everybody. She was just a little monster. And at one point she got stuck in her cage behind her wheel and It was like 127 hours. Her arm was stuck. She wouldn't let any of us help her because she was biting. She was panicked. And she ate off her own arm. And then the little paw fell to the cage. And I immediately rushed to, like, change the thing so, like, we could clean it and get it out. And she ate her paw. Wow. Oh, my God. It's so gruesome. But when I saw this, I immediately thought of that horrible hamster and had to share this did she survive yeah she survived she went on to live for like another year and then we moved out of the country and i gave her to someone else so wow i know well i uh i what was her name uh it, it's 
um, not very woke, so I don't want to say it. Okay, so... She was a dwarf hamster. Oh, gosh. So Brit has some sort of troubling past. Let's not... Let's... Look, we're... We're still in the early phases exactly. of this podcast. Don't, we don't, we don't want to get canceled. Delicately avoiding you asking that question. <laughs> this is why we need to compare notes beforehand, yes. Brett. So you're like, by the way, it's a insensitive name. Don't ask me on air or while recording, Aaron. But we're lear- this is a learning process. This is a learning so. process. Who knew we should talk about what we're doing before we do it? <laughs> Uh, well, look, I, I'm sure we've all made some mistakes in our past, and we... Anyhow, lest people start speculating what the name of this hamster is, uh, I will say that your hamster does sound pretty badass, and sounds like the kind of hamster that if people were going to create an army of human-hamster hybrids as these weaponized hamsters of war, then... Sounds like your insensitively named hamster could be the good DNA basis, good she genetic basis for it. She totally would be. And we would give her a better name. <laughs> we can call her Midge. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're. You're. You're paving the way of where this is going. <laughs> so, wait, is that the rest of your story? Is there more yeah, to it? Yeah, that's it. Oh, okay. Well, um, there's nothing controversial about Venus, except that it rhymes with penis. But we can say penis on there. <laughs> I mean, why not? We can say penis, but we can't say my hamster's name. Nope. Nope. But you know, this is the thing. So, Mars, for years, has been receiving all the attention. Uh, gonna go to Mars. Gonna be life on Mars. But I'll tell you what, Mars, Venus might be the place to be, and it might be the place where microbial life is. Now, this comes from NPR, but this was all over the place, and this is news that is breaking right now, in fact. Scientists say they have detected a gas in the clouds of Venus that perhaps is produced by microbial life. Researchers have been racking their brains trying to understand what this toxic gas phosphine is there in such quantities, why it's there in such quantities. The mystery raises the astonishing possibility that Venus, the planet that comes closest to Earth as it whizzes around the sun, might have some kind of life flourishing 30 miles up in its yellow, hazy clouds. Now, nothing on the surface of Venus could live there. Well, based on our definition of life, it's really these volcanic plains. It's considered a scorching hellscape, hot enough to melt lead. Temperatures exceed 800 degrees Fahrenheit. However, high in the clouds, things are a little bit less intense. And back in the day, though, Venus was pretty similar to Earth. And the surface was actually pretty habitable Hmm. before it had its own greenhouse effect that set in. And Carl Sagan, love Carl Sagan, even Mm -hmm. entertained the notion back in the 1960s that life could have inhabited the surface of Venus. Now, all of that said, I just feel like, yeah, Mars is still pretty cool, but if there is perhaps microbial life in the clouds of Venus that is producing this phosphine gas, that uh, that kind of gives Venus a little bit of heads up. And it reminds me of the Twilight Zone episode 
of Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up. I don't know if you've heard of this one. You've probably heard of this one. But it's basically where this bus full of passengers end up at a diner and then these highway patrolmen come in and suspect that one of them is an alien mm. and one of them is from Mars. And at the end of the episode, spoiler alert, basically everybody on the bus dies. But a oh. guy walks back in the diner and talking to the diner owner. And the guy that walks back in the diner, he was one of the occupants on the bus. And he's like, ha, 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 by the way, uh, Mars Martians are already here. And I'm the Martian. And he pulls out an extra arm. He's got a third arm and he lights oh. a cigarette. And then the cafe owner takes off his hat and he has a third eye. And he's like, suck it, Mars, because the Venusians have been here long oh. before y'all. So we've already colonized Earth. So step up. Wow. Is this a word for word play by play? Yes, actually. <laughs> In in the nineteen uh, the nineteen sixties when Twilight Zone was on, "Step Off" was part of the vernacular, and you know I I think that that is yeah it's it's like I'm reading from the script. It right is. Now. We actually got the approval to just play a clip of the actual show. That's what you guys yeah. just heard. Yeah. So there you go. And yeah, it's it's, it's vernacular from the late fifties to early sixties. But so okay, you know. Maybe maybe there's life on Venus. I don't know. Every day it does seem like there's new news coming out that something's going on, and we don't know exactly what know. it is. So I, I say know. bring it on. Anyhow, shall we shall we talk some more about the topic? Today? Let's get into it. This Do was you, a lot to research. Before we get into it, uh, your background with vampires. What, what, I mean, you, because you spent so much time in Paris, there's some cool vampire lore associated with that city. Yeah, I don't know too much about it, um, but my mom growing up really loved the Interview with a Vampire series, and so she had me read that, and so, like, Lestat was probably, like, the first vampire that I was, like, introduced to. Um, and then, guys, I am so sorry, but I was really into Twilight, so... <laughs> I don't, there's nothing wrong with that. I personally do not care for it, but I don't judge anyone's pop culture I was affinity. Team Edward all the way. I am not Team Jacob, I'm sorry. Right. I think I would be... I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I go back and forth with vampires versus werewolves. Although in a lot of lore, they were kind of one in the same mm -hmm. that a vampire could turn into a wolf. So that, you know, the, the vampire versus werewolves thing didn't really come along until a lot later. In fact, a lot of lore that we associate with vampires was established much, much, much later. And a lot of it was influenced by pop culture instead of actual... Oh. But yeah, like even just the idea of how you become a vampire was not so much through a vampire's bite, but you could be living a life of sin or promiscuous mm -hmm. or causing some sort of offense to God. And that's how or maybe dying without being baptized and coming back as a vampire. So it wasn't oh. about and the idea of like vampires not being able to walk 
around during the day. Mm-hmm. That that was introduced in Nosferatu, I believe. Oh. So that that all of that stuff is much later in the early 20th century. So, but for you personally, but do you think you could handle immortality? No. I mean, I just think I would get bored. Like, being in quarantine, and I was furloughed from my job for, like, three months, and it would be, like, month three, I would just look around, like, okay, now what do I do? Like, I realize... What? Not me. Oh, okay. No, go on. Sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, no. I just... I would get bored, you know? Like not going anywhere, not doing anything. I mean, I guess if you had eternal life, like you couldn't probably get COVID so you could do whatever the fuck you wanted. But I think that, yeah, if you were a vampire in quarantine, it would probably suck. But if you're a vampire and you're able to travel, go anywhere. Okay. Well then then I'm down with it. You know, you do have to deal with watching all of your loved ones die and then making new loved ones and then watching them die and over and over again. I don't, I don't know, think though, I can do that. researching okay that. this story and, like, reading about people drinking human blood, I got so sick. Well, <gasps> so, interestingly enough, so New Orleans is a big vampire town mm-hmm. associated with vampire lore. And New York, as well, actually has a lot of vampire contingents. But I do know some vampires in New Orleans. And the way... and And... They do believe that drinking human blood provides them with a sustenance of sorts. They still eat regular food, but consuming blood provides them with a vitality. And there is one vampire friend of mine in particular that has multiple donors. And it's a voluntary system, and it's a very safe and clean system and it sometimes involves now there some vampires have sort of a they they take vials of blood but in this case he would he takes it right from the source there is a process of safe cutting and then he sucks the blood from his donors directly and Brit says nothing. It's just, it's interesting because I can talk about 30-year-old brunette women in the Upper West Side getting brutally murdered and it doesn't bug me at all. Like, I can read about things that happen exactly to me, doesn't make my stomach turn, but for some reason the idea of ingesting blood. I, I'm fine with, like, seeing blood. I'm fine with getting cut. It doesn't, like, give me the heebie-jeebies. But for some reason this story made me feel so sick do you so you can watch your own blood but yeah like when you when you prick your finger you don't just suck the blood off the tip ew no you've never tasted your own blood i mean sure i'm sure i have but like wash your hands and like put a band-aid on it does it taste good your own no no it's gross you stop being a creep is this is this were you actually the vampire friend I was actually the vampire friend. No, uh, but I did. I I did have a lot of time. In fact, I think last year at a comic con in New Orleans, I had a vampire panel where I had real vampires on it, and we talked a lot about this. I will say, 
I don't know what if it's still being published, but there was a book called The Dead Travel Fast, which was an exploration of vampire culture from several years ago, and the author starts the book by talking about drinking his own blood, and he gets quite sick from it because, yeah. you know, he, he's not equipped to do it. Okay, before we get into your story, I'm, I'm excited to get your, your story. Let's hear from a sponsor. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Think things are bad now? Well, it could be worse. Don't believe me? Just read Dead Run, the new sci-fi thriller from author Mike Maddox. A mysterious force is taking control of people's bodies and making them run to stay alive. And if you can't keep running, now this is the ad copy, so I'm reading the ad copy because it says, if you can't keep running, you blow up like spaghetti left in the microwave too long. It's not a good scene. Mm -mm. It's a very messy situation. And it's got to have marinara sauce because then it kind of looks like blood. Right. And this, the pasta itself would be sort of Ew. look like viscera. Ew. And except in a microwave, but at least in a microwave, you're contained. The, the explosion is contained. Yep. It's a messy microwave to clean up. But if you're running down the road and you can't keep, can't Flat. run anymore, just splat. You're just, and then you're all over <laughs> your friends and the other Ew. apocalyptic pals. Ew, do not nearby. splat on me. And in an apocalypse, you don't have easy access to soap, water. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if you can stop running long enough to sh like shampoo and, and bathe after yeah. your friend, your your pal has just blown up on you. Anyhow, <laughs> I mean, this is really, I think, selling the book. Anyhow, the story follows a group of weary travelers as they make their way through a hellish landscape where there's only one rule. Run or die. This is Dead Run. And other than being chilling and scary, it will also perhaps inspire you to eat the right kind of carbs <laughs> and jog every day just in case this apocalypse hits. So check it out. It's available exclusively on Amazon Kindle. It's only like three bucks. It's well worth your three bucks. And read Dead Run by Mike Maddox on Amazon Kindle. And we're back, and Britt is ready to gross us all out with her vampire story. Yep. Let's hear it. Let's buckle up for this very dark tale of Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento. I heard about him, like, a long time ago and remember, like, hearing bits and pieces and just being flabbergasted. So this is the full juicy tale. I don't know why that hit, that word just came hey to my head. <laughs> I think because it's a great pun. That's why it came to your head. So I'm gross. so proud of you. It's so gross. Um, Richard was born May 23rd, 1950 in Sacramento into a super rough world right off the bat. His dad was physically abusive um, and very quickly he showed the McDonald triad of sociopathy, which is bedwetting, setting fires, and harm to animals. So, rough, rough start. 
Um, being too much to manage, his dad actually kicked him out of the house and he began experimenting with drugs, mainly LSD and alcohol. Um, it's a dangerous combination if you really struggle with mental illness. Um, this experimentation led him to disturbing beliefs about himself. Uh, one being was that he was near death and not getting enough vitamin C. So what he would do to fix this is that he would push orange peels into his forehead, like really hard, hoping that the orange peels would like diffuse through his skin. Um, now I grew up in a very alternative medicine household, but even this... It's a little alternative to me. <laughs> I don't know. Based on some some beliefs that people have these days, it kind of kind of makes sense. I mean, we can't even get people to wear masks. So true, true. Um, if only it this. Ah, uh, oh, damn it! I missed a chance for a terrible pun. What's the pun? Okay, I'll give it to you anyhow. Uh, set it up one more time. What would he do, Britt? He would push oranges into his forehead. I've heard of an orange crush, but that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. We did it. We did it. Thanks, uh, for, thanks for the assist. Always. If only this weirdness stopped with oranges, uh, but of course, oranges don't get you on a true crime podcast. Uh, in 1975, he was institutionalized because he believed he needed blood to keep his heart pumping. So he injected himself with the blood of a rabbit. And it made him violently sick, and he had to be hospitalized. While he was in the hospital, he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and was now on supervised medication. Uh, he didn't like it. He thought it was making him more sick, so he turned to killing birds out of the windows of the hospital and drinking their blood to make him better. So everyone in the hospital started calling him Dracula. What's unfortunate is that he somehow was convincing them that he was getting better. So he was allowed to be released from the hospital into the care of his mom. Um, but she was being strict about his medication and care, and he felt like she was still poisoning him. Um, so he moved in with some friends. I'm using air quotes because I'm guessing they were strangers, because who would willingly move in with this dude? Um, but they got freaked out by his behaviors. They said he would walk around naked all of the time. They moved out and they left him in the apartment alone to his own devices. So this is when it starts getting real bad. Uh, he started going back to killing and drinking the blood of animals. He started mixing the blood with Coca-Cola to make it more palatable. Well, I, uh, just, you know. A little, I mean, I add lime to a lot of drinks, so. I mean, I was really into Coke Black. Do you remember Coke Black? I do, and I, it was I think we might be the only two. with a shot of espresso. I was so yeah. into it. It was so good. <laughs> it's gone too soon. Yes, I agree. But Coke with blood is disgusting. Um, Terrible, too, terrible branding. Terrible <laughs> branding. Plan. Yeah. Two years. There's, sorry, come no, on. say it. Sorry. No, no, it's just there's like Coke Zero, but you know, Coke uh, o, o, o or o Coke O negative. negative or whatever. Yeah. Sorry. Go on. Coke is never going to advertise on our podcast now. Um, but we'll take Pepsi. 
So two years after his release, he was found in Lake Tahoe, covered in blood with a liver in the bucket of his trunk. But the police somehow determined, uh, just with their eyeballs, that it was the blood of a cow, so they let him go. I don't know how they were able to determine that, just without any evidence collection, but whatever. Um, also, I'll post pictures to our Instagram. This guy's face was, like, so creepy. I don't know how a man that looked like that covered in blood could get away with it, but whatever. Um, he was white, so let's be honest, that probably had something to do with it. Um... And now that he has the confidence that as a white man, he can get away with these brutal crimes, um, he starts to escalate. In December, just a couple months after the Tahoe incident, his mom tells him that he's not invited to come to Christmas because he's a creep. Uh, that's my words, not hers. <laughs> um, he gets angry and while driving home, shoots a 51-year-old man who is just helping his wife bring in the groceries. Yeah. That's, that sucks. And he just, like, shot him and drove away. Like, that's just gross. But he got away with it, so he started to get really cocky. In 1978, he, and this is probably what most people know him for, he starts checking doors in different neighborhoods to see if they are locked. Um, so this is why it's important to lock your doors. If he found one that was left open, he would say it was a sign for him to go in. So he finds the house of pregnant Teresa Wallen open. He lets himself in. Um, and if the story so far hasn't been enough of a trigger warning, I'm just going to say trigger warning. She is shot three times. He then cuts out her organs and drinks her blood using a yogurt cup that was left on the counter. Um, Obviously, she didn't survive, and neither did her child. Four days later, he finds Evelyn Miroth's door unlocked. Inside was Evelyn, her son, and her friend David. When the police come in, they find David and her son shot in his room. And Evelyn is laying, again, trigger warning, with her stomach cut open her organs missing, and evidence that she had been sodomized after death. It turns out in the trial that someone had knocked on the door and scared him. So he took Evelyn's car keys, stole her car, and fled the scene. Um, if you want to do some more research, I didn't want to cover this on the podcast, but there was a baby in the house as well. Um, and when he fled, he took the child it's really horrible um the neighbor of course calls 911 and Richard had left his seat his like fingerprints all over the scene so the police get there they immediately like connect the dots and they go to his apartment to search in his apartment they find a blender covered in blood blood-stained utensils and a brain in the fridge. So like, not only is everything covered in blood and he's gross because he drinks blood, he's not clean. Well, <laughs> I would say that in a very disturbing, gruesome story, 
his cleanliness i mean cleanliness is close to godliness is the old saying and this is clearly not the case with him so no uh he's immediately arrested his trial took five months his attorney claimed uh not guilty by reason of insanity the jury deliberated for only five hours and convicted him on six counts of murder to be sentenced by death in the gas chamber his fellow inmates were terrified of him um, and would, you know, be really cruel to him in jail. And he actually ended up committing suicide before he could be put to death by stockpiling his anti-anxiety medication and overdosing the day after Christmas in 1980. And that is the story of Richard Chase. Yeah, and definitely a disturbing, disturbing one. What's... So there's, and we've talked a little bit about this, there are actually multiple vampire Mm -hmm. killers in America alone. And the ones that, that I find, I'm not going to tell each of their stories because it's easy enough to look them up, but varying degrees of belief in sort of vampire lore, believing that there, there was one, the vampire slasher of San Francisco that believed he was a 2000 year old vampire. Mm -hmm. And then others that that believed that they were being sustained by consuming human blood mm-hmm. what i think is what, what's interesting about chase is that the notion of the open door the unlocked door mm-hmm. there's a classic idea within vampire lore as well as demonology and the paranormal that you have to be invited in mm-hmm. that as an entity if you hear three knocks on the door and you open that door, that's you being invited in. So kind of by extension, perhaps he was thinking that by it being unlocked, that's an invitation. Mm-hmm. That, that's literally the door being left open for him. The Backtracking, the is there theories that there were victims that were never identified yes. of, of his? There's Yes, I think there's got to be, especially when he was seen in Lake Tahoe covered in blood. I, I think that has to be a human that he went after, that it was just never solved. It's got to be a cold case in that area, um, and no one's been able to directly connect the dots to him. Yeah. Yeah, it's a disturbing one. I mean, I, I think, you know, as we've spoken a little bit off the air, it's this is obviously paranormal and true crime mm-hmm. podcast but it's always difficult managing that line about how how much to talk about obviously these things did happen but man some of it just gets so dark that oh. it's it's so dark take your medication seek help take care of yourself yeah yeah there's and there is kind of a question of i don't know maybe this is an unpopular idea about there's a lot of a lot of people, a lot of us out there who struggle with things that are even in our our challenges are not going so far as necrophilia and yeah. and <laughs> drinking blood and cannibalism and everything. Yeah. So, um, so th- there are a lot of stories about people that don't appear to have a history of this kind of activity that then, in an attempt to cover up whatever heinous crime they've done do suddenly dismember start dismembering bodies and that's like a whole other thing we could do a whole 
episode about people that after they've killed someone, they're like, oh, the best thing to do is suddenly start dismembering the body and distributing it elsewhere. There's a couple in New Orleans as well, a couple of cases like that. Well, gruesome. Definitely Richard Chase, the, uh, the vampire of Sacramento. We're going to go a little bit different direction for my story, which we will hear right after another word from our sponsors. Nightmarica is excited to announce we have a new sponsor, Manscaped. And to talk about the men's grooming kits, we have a really big fan of Manscaped. But not a man, a Sasquatch. From the Florida Everglades, let's welcome Skunk Ape to the show. Thanks for joining, Mr. Ape. Oh, Skunk is fine, just fine. That's uh, that's what my friends call me. Even though you're an elusive cryptid, you're able to have a social life? Oh, sure, sure. Wood booger, yeah, we mow, mow, wendigo, mow, galon. We all, we all hang out. Well, that's great. With all those friends, it's probably important to look your best. We take a lot of pride in how we look uh, in the Sasquatch community, especially uh, since, uh, as you can imagine, there ain't a whole heck of a lot of us out there, so it gets pretty darn competitive getting attention from the lady squatches. So the Lawnmower 3.0 from Manscaped has a durable, skin-safe ceramic blade when you groom your, uh, squatchy regions. Don't you know it? That Lawnmower 3.0 holds an edge, so I'm less likely to nick my nugs. It's happened before, and it ain't pretty. There's blood everywhere. Everyone down in the glades heard me howl out that one time. Whoop, whoop! That's what, that's what it sounded like when I nicked my nugs. But not with this Lawnmower 3.0. Dude, that's intense. I have certainly been there. It is no fun at all. Skunky, I imagine grooming down there probably takes a lot of time because you're a pretty big guy. Well, you know what they say about big feet. Big shoes? Big balls! Yep, right, sizable. Sasquatchicles. Big old ones. But with them lithium-ion batteries I can charge that puppy up on the USB dock, I can use it for 90 minutes. It's even waterproof, so I can... Fire it up in the glades and take a good long time getting my squashticles right where they needs to be. Well, with that waterproof technology, that's got to be helpful in the glades. Or even for a human like me who uses the shower. Is the Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0 getting you noticed down there? Only in the right ways. All the lady squatches or, or men, no, no judgment, they take notice. But I can still stay hidden because with that quiet stroke technology... It does not make a lot of noise and attract unwanted look-a-loos. And that's a very important part of the Squatch Code. You gotta stay undercover, you know? I can even groom up my Squatchicles in the middle of the night. Because it's got an LED light on it. So you can see where your Patterson and Gimlin are. It's a memorable pair. And speaking of memorable pairs, you also like the Manscaped Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Ball Toner. Well, you might have heard I have a bit of an odor issue, hence the nickname Skunky. And with the Florida humidity, uh, I can smell pretty darn ripe down there. So I use that Manscaped Ball Deodorant to, to make the Squashicles smell fresh as a daisy and the Ball Toner to freshen up when Skunk turns to funk. Maybe we should start calling you Flowers instead of Skunky. Well, Skunky, if you or your Squatch Buddies or any listeners out there want to groom safely, and who doesn't, head over to manscaped.com and enter code NIGHTMERICA for 20% off plus free shipping off your order. For one more time, that's... Squatchscaped! No, no it's not. It's Manscaped. Manscaped. The right tools for the job. 
Okay, well, I don't want to say that this is a lighter note story, but it's perhaps not... Uh, definitely not murderous and, and maybe tragic in a different way. But let's let's think back to 30 years ago, Griswold, Connecticut, 1990. It's a group of children playing near a gravel mine, and they discover graves. In fact, they discover 29 burials that were typical of the kinds of graves you might see in the 1700s and early 1800s. However, burial number four that they found was atypical. Connecticut State Archaeologist Nick Bellantoni was called in, and he said that this was only one of two stone crypts in this farm cemetery that these children had discovered. And inside this one stone crypt, which was painted red, it was it was a coffin that was painted red. He found the skeletal feet of a man. Proceeds to take off the rest of the coffin lid. And then things get a little interesting because this skeleton of a 50-ish-year-old man was beheaded. And his skull and thigh bones rested atop his ribs and atop his vertebrae, almost like a skull and crossbones or a Jolly uh. Roger, like a Jolly Roger pattern. Analysis showed that this, this dismemberment of the body occurred nearly five years after the occupant's death. And this skeleton came to be known as JB because there were some brass nails hammered into the, the coffin. So JB. And this, my friends, remains the only intact archaeological clue to what we know as the New England Vampire Panic. So, the New England Vampire Panic. Well, let's introduce Michael Bell. He's a Rhode Island folklorist. Michael Bell is really sort of the superstar of vampire folklore and the New England Vampire Panic in North America, or at least in the United States. Maybe Canada has their own guy. <laughs> Michael Bell has documented eight exhumations reaching as far back as the late 1700s and as far west as Minnesota. Most of them, however, are in New England and occurred in the 1800s. Now, consider that this was... What's sort of the... What's analogous to this? The witch hunt, witch trials mm -hmm. of Salem, Massachusetts. That was in the 1690s. Now we're talking about the 1800s, mm. and this vampire panic was taking place. And in fact, the first known reference to a vampire scare in America was this letter to the editor of the Connecticut Current and Weekly Intelligencer in 1784. And there was a councilman named Moses Holmes from the town of Willington who warned people to beware of, quote, a certain quack doctor, a foreigner, who had urged families to dig up and burn dead relatives to stop consumption. Or, 
what we know as tuberculosis, mm -hmm. and we'll get in get into that in a minute. Now, these desecrations of dead bodies, dead relatives, these vampire hunts were quiet affairs a lot of times, but they occasionally became quite public, such as in Manchester, Vermont, there were hundreds of people that flocked to a 1793 heart-burning ceremony where the newspaper quoted, or actually historical records were documented as saying, quote, Timothy Mead officiated at the altar in the sacrifice of the demon vampire who, who it was believed was still sucking the blood of the then-living wife of Captain Burton. But interestingly enough, the early town history also said, it was a month of February and good slaying. Which is a great pun, but I, meaning sleigh riding, slaying, but they also, oh. but they spelled it slain. <laughs> slain instead of slain. Yeah, S-L-A-Y-N. Yeah. yeah. Anyhow, the Rhode Island Monthly reported, and this was a, this was a recent report, but in their own research, they wrote of a late 1700s case by, of a man named Snuffy Tillingast, which is oh a my great God. name. That is a Snuffy great name. Tillingast. It's like Stubby McCockburn. Like Stubby McCockburn, except, except Snuffy Tillingast. So Snuffy dreamt that half of his apple orchard withered. Late, late 1700s. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, the symbolism didn't really present itself until later, when this is Exeter, Rhode Island, the farmer's children were struck by consumption, tuberculosis, tuberculosis, I cannot speak today, in quick succession. The eldest child, Sarah, was the first to perish in 1799. However, five more siblings, five more children of Snuffy and Sarah's mother also fell ill, and all of them complained that Sarah visited them in death, after dark, and weighed upon their chests. Mm. So the neighbors of Snuffy convinced him to examine his buried children, and the neighbors, the local mob, carried picks and spades and everything to the family plot, cracked open the coffins to find that all of the bodies were in advanced stages of decomposition, except Sarah who had long fingernails, open eyes, and fresh blood in her heart. So they deduced that she must be a vampire, and she was being nourished by the blood of her siblings. Hmm. Now, now, how do, you, how do you dispatch of a vampire in New England? Well, the old, old Eastern European lore was cutting off the head, putting a brick in its mouth, maybe putting garlic around, a necklace yeah. of garlic around. Also... The idea of staking a vampire was not, again, modern pop culture associates staking wooden stake to destroying a vampire. Really, the idea was to stake a vampire was just to keep them in place so they oh. couldn't get out. And then they would just be wiggling around in their coffin like, ah, I can't move. I'm, it's like, <laughs> so st I'm stuck here. But vampire lore over here is that a vampire slayed by destroying its heart and... Then you could burn the heart, which is what happened to Sarah's. Her heart was cut out and burned to an ash. However, one of Sarah's siblings did still die. However, her mom, Honor, survived. Okay, there's some more here. 
There's a Vampire Heart torched in Woodstock, Vermont, on the town green in 1830. 1854 in Jewett City, Connecticut, which is actually close to Griswold, where we get the story of J.B., townspeople had exhumed several corpses suspected to be vampires, and they believe that they are rising from their graves to kill the living. The vampire panic of New England was such that even Henry David Thoreau, who was a poet and philosopher, we we know Mm -hmm. him, he wrote about it in a September 26, 1859 journal entry, and he said, quote, The savage in man is never quite eradicated. I have just read of a family in Vermont who, several of its members, having died of consumption, just burned the lungs, heart, and liver of their last deceased in order to prevent any more from having it, of the disease, having the disease. Communities in Maine and Massachusetts. Now, they believe that you could stop the vampires by just exhuming them and flipping them over face town in the grave, hmm. which seems like pretty, pretty simple. Yeah, that seems but, very simple. Yeah. It's easier. It's less, less mess, less muss, less fuss. I, I don't know if I believe but in, that. But in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Vermont, well, I already mentioned that they would cut out the heart and burn mm-hmm. it. However, that wasn't all the, that they would do because sometimes they would inhale the smoke of the burning heart as a cure and sometimes they would actually create a mixture with the ashes and drink that oh, with the burned gosh. heart. Yeah. These people. Yeah. Some of that happened in, in Europe as well and they would even bind the feet with thorns to, to keep them keep them tied down so let's talk a little bit about tuberculosis so jb who is our vampire from the beginning or accused vampire he suffered from tuberculosis modern scientists deduced or some sort of lung disease and this wasting illness would often receive this the the diagnosis of consumption however a lot of people said that the the notion of vampires the people that believed in vampirism believed that these vampires were responsible for preying upon family members who then subsequently fell sick. And tuberculosis had started to plague New England in the 1730s, and that was a few decades before that first known vampire scare. By the 1800s, these scares were really at their height, and... You know, think about it. The disease, tuberculosis consumption, was the leading cause of mortality throughout the entire northeast portion of the country. And it claimed a quarter of all deaths during this period. And the symptoms of tuberculosis tuberculosis would often be people that would just be so destroyed by the disease, they would have pale and withered bodies Mm -hmm. and they would actually resemble walking corpses sort of in the similar way that vampires are portrayed in pop culture and and some localities said that victims were quote in the vampire's grasp and of course they Mm -hmm. coughed up blood and that was when the fluid would collect in and collapsed lungs and they couldn't breathe very well because they they were because of all of that in he, incessant mm-hmm. hacking. They were starved of oxygen, 
and they felt as if someone was sitting on their chest, such as the story that we had mentioned mm-hmm. earlier of uh, the Tillingast family. And to other members of the family, it might look like someone was even sucking the blood from their loved ones as they were withering away. So these beliefs, a lot of rural areas of New England at the time, we th- they were very pious people, but they weren't church-going people in the traditional sense at that time. And these legends were likely carried over from maybe Hessian mercenaries in the Revolutionary War or from immigrants from Slavic Europe. And when we also think about what had happened when they would exhume these bodies, these bodies would be bloated. They would look like they had recently eaten because Mm -hmm. they had these blood-filled faces. Mm -hmm. And even if you do penetrate the body of a corpse, it essentially screams because of the escape of natural gases. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Which I have heard this sound from a corpse. And, really? And it it is an odd sound. Yeah, I've I've been around people who have recently passed and there is this sound that is emitted. It's unsettling. Oh my god. And so all of that leads up to the story of Mercy Brown, who is the last American vampire. And it was a young girl, 19 years old, late 19th century. Mercy Lena Brown, everybody called her Lena, and she lived in the town of Exeter, sort of like the Tillingast family, and Exeter was a town in decline, really. It had bad soil. It was an agrarian town, Mm. but it had bad soil. Civil War casualties really peeled away the population, so the population was dwindling, and other people, the younger folks because of the railroad system that offered up the potential for a more promising future were clearing out of there and tuberculosis was ravaging this area in fact this area was known as deserted exeter Mm. so in december 1882 lena's mother mercy brown's mother mary eliza was the first of the brown family to go from tuberculosis Lena's sister, or Mercy's sister, I'm going to use these names interchangeably, Mary Olive was a 20-year-old dressmaker. She died the next year, so in 1883. Interestingly enough, the obit for Mary Olive was quite sweet and solemn and said a lot of nice things about her, which was not extended to other members of the family later on. Huh, I wonder what that's all about. I don't know. I think, I don't know. She was actually church-going, though. She was, like, the nice one of the family? Every family I guess has so. one. My nephew I also is think, the nice one of the family. I also think maybe it's to fit a narrative, because... So, Brother Edwin, also known as Eddie, cleared out. He went to Colorado. He was suffering from tuberculosis, but he went to Colorado believing that the better climate would be helpful for him. But instead, he was sickened, and eventually, after a brief remission, he did return to Exeter and fell ill. At this time, Mercy, unfortunately, was also on her deathbed. And when Mercy Lena Brown passed away, Eddie was still ill. So, the town people came to suspect evil forces. Maybe one of the the three brown women that had died from consumption, maybe they weren't dead at all. 
and instead they were feasting on the living tissue and blood of Edwin, as the Providence Journal later reported. Now, locals, some locals didn't use the term vampire, but the papers most certainly did. And these locals did think, according to this lore that we have built up, that you could exhume the body, you could destroy it if you found the right body that looked like the vampire, and then Edwin would recover. So the neighbors asked George Brown, the father, to exhume the bodies, and he gave permission. And they went about their work of exhuming the bodies to check for fresh blood in the hearts. On the morning of March 17th, 1892, they dug up the bodies, and a family doctor, as well as a correspondent from the Providence Journal, looked on. And Lena, now again, this is in March, this is during winter, so the decomposition process has slowed down. Mm -hmm. Lena had been dead for a couple months, it was winter time, and the body was in a fairly well-preserved state. The heart and liver were were removed, they cut open the heart, and the blood was clotted inside the heart. And the doctor actually tried to emphasize that this was, she just suffered from tuberculosis. However, the villagers were not to be convinced, and they believed that they had found their vampire. So they burned her, burned her heart and liver on a nearby rock, and they fed Edwin, Eddie, the ashes. But he still died less than two months later. Now, George, the father, did ask the doctor to perform an autopsy at the graveyard. Okay, good. And it and turns out George Brown was not on site during this exhumation of his family, of his entire family. He elected to be somewhere else. It later turned out that maybe George Brown was not so on board with this whole vampire theory and instead simply did it to, quote, satisfy the neighbors. And in a way, you can kind of understand because these locals, they were determined to find their vampire and George had to live amongst them. And he did. And he did because he apparently was not prone to tuberculosis and he lived into 1922, into a ripe old age. That's a long life. Yeah. So... Just to talk a little bit about why people believe these things, I think it's, I think it's an interesting concept that it can't have been an easy process digging up the bodies of your loved ones, no of way. Your, your children, your siblings, your spouses. But I think that it's worth kind of exploring why would people do this? The brains, human brain, was not. Our, our brain has not changed in the last couple hundred years. We're operating with the same brain that they had. So even though science and medicine has evolved, they were arguably of the same intelligence. And the 1800s were a period of social progress, and there was actually a lot of scientific advancements taking place. And Exeter was close to Newport, Rhode Island, which was really this high society destination. Hmm. Industrialists would go there. 
So Exeter was, I think, 20 miles away, but it was a small community, but not too far from a, a relatively modern area. I think that, I think when you see this epidemic claiming 25% of, of people, yeah. of all the deaths in the Northeast, it does something to you. And so Mercy, or Mercy's mother, Mercy Lena Brown's mother, died in 1882, remember? And, and she later died in 1892. Well, in 1882, the other thing that happened was Robert Cock had actually... <laughs> yes, funny name. <laughs> Dr. Cock had identified... <laughs> had identified the tuberculosis bacterium in 1882. So scientifically, they had identified tuberculosis in 1882, but the news of this discovery was relatively slow in spreading. Whereas yeah. the disease was the disease was spreading fast, the news of the discovery had spread slowly. Yeah, they and didn't have news channels like we do. Right. And considered drug treatments for tuberculosis would not become available until the 1940s. Mm. And the medical community was basically doing bupkis because they couldn't they couldn't they couldn't do anything. So the the best they could do was say drinking tinctures of brown sugar dissolved in water might cure you or frequent horseback riding <laughs> might cure you of tuberculosis. And, and they were saying this just to say something because otherwise their only thing they could say was there's nothing we can do. And they didn't want to say that. Yeah. Although some people, you know, some people said whatever, it's in God's hands. But these the medical community couldn't really say anything. So I think that these townsfolk, these, these people in these rural areas, and they had these old belief systems because, again, and a lot of times the young was – leaving the area so that left the older population an older vulnerable population where superstitions continued to persist i think they were just trying to do whatever they could do and they were there was widespread belief in this that it was the only guidance it was sort of like these folklore provided an alternative to a helpless situation and and while these rural areas believed that, there were mainstream newspapers at the time that were saying, quote, We seem to have been transported back to the darkest age of unreasoning ignorance and blind superstition instead of living in the, eight, in the 19th century, where the Boston Daily Globe said, quote, Perhaps the frequent intermarriage of families in these backcountry districts may partially account for some of their characteristics. Basically blaming yeah. backwoods, redneck yeah. Things and 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 really interestingly, and I think there's a parallel to our own pandemic situation yeah. in this in this country is that the London Post, so stories of the Yankee vampire jump the pond was being reported on in Europe, and they said whatever is happening in America with this Yankee vampire, it's an American problem, and. So the legacy of all of this is that Mercy Brown was supposedly the last American vampire. And her story may have inspired Bram Stoker 
when he was writing Dracula. Mm. And now this is contested. However, Bram Stoker, Dracula came out later, only a couple years after Mercy Brown's death. Bram Stoker's character of Lucy in Dracula is a young woman who is infected and exhumed as a physician looks on, and you consider the name Lucy mm-hmm. does sound a little bit like Lena. a combination of Lena and Mercy. Mm-hmm. Also, H.P. Lovecraft, who is an icon and instrumental in horror, even though he was a garbage human being and a racist, <laughs> seems to have been inspired by the Mercy Brown story in the shunned house. Mm. And in Chestnut Hill Cemetery... In Exeter, Rhode Island, you can still go see the marker, the gravestone of Mercy Lena Brown. She lies beside the brother who ate her heart and next to the father who let it happen. And some say she continues to haunt a bridge in Exeter Mm. and, and even murmurs in the cemetery as a ghost. So... Some people that go to try to capture her voice continue to hear her. And sometimes she even visits the terminally ill to tell them that dying is not so bad. So it's a story of the New England vampire panic, even in a relatively modern, evolved era of American history. In rural areas, there was Mm -hmm. still this belief and vampires, and I'm going to throw it out here that perhaps for the Minnesota or at another time, I will give you the story from 1849 from Pennsylvania that suggests maybe, just maybe, the vampire panic did not end with Mercy Brown, but continued well into the 20th century. Let's do it. Let's do it. So... With that said, this is this is just a crazy chapter of American history and one that was talked about the world over and was happening. We're recording this in New York City was happening right around us yeah. and and even as far west as Minnesota. Yeah. But you know, you have to think like even now and not to get like too existential or whatever, but like you hear of these rural areas or areas where there is a heavily older community where they're not wearing masks, even though our media is like coming out saying and studies clearly show that they're effective. Like there's rural pockets where they aren't doing it and they have their own belief system. So, I mean, it's not as extreme as vampires, but I think the mentality isn't all that dissimilar. Well, I don't know. I don't know whether or not you could say it is or isn't as extreme as, extreme as vampires because you consider that as we're recording this, if 200,000 people are yeah. dying in the United States alone of COVID-19, yeah. I think the, the parallel there and is quite timely is that now media is playing a different role now because mm-hmm. people can very much operate in an echo chamber with their own yep. confirmation bias and, and consume the media that just supports what they believe. However... We do live in a time where if you have some sort of belief system or if you consume certain kinds of media, it will actually create a belief system for you that instead of a virus, instead of a disease ravaging us, 
when when we have yet to establish a vaccine, uh, rather we can find our own essential new folk beliefs to explain away what's happening, either yeah. as a hoax or or demon alien DNA or or other conspiracy theories that are out there. You can find your own folk beliefs to explain it away, and and it's and it allows you to grapple with a sometimes a unmanageable problem. Yeah. Although it is manageable if we were just going to wear bloody masks yeah. and keep at a social distance. Well, don't wear bloody masks. You should have them clean. Yeah. But wear yeah, Don't wear bloody masks. Yeah. I guess unless you're a vampire and you just want a little snack inside your <laughs> yeah. mask. So you can just like, just like lap it up like a little bit. Like I'm thinking, thinking Hannibal Lecter ate fava beans Ew. with a nice candy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, stop that. You know I hate that noise. I got what? my flu shot today. I got my flu shot today mm. trying to prevent that flu season, COVID, whatever. Good. So, so be safe. Anyhow, well, before we get out of here, let's just throw out a little paranormal pop culture. What are you into this week? So, because we're like getting into spooky season, I've actually discovered some really incredible spooky season playlists on Spotify. Um, one I really love by Kayla Nicholson. That's like a little more offbeat, but there's a lot of really good like Halloween time playlists. So, I'll link to that on the sources page on our Patreon. But I've just been jamming out into some good spooky tunes to get in the mood. We could also, I actually have my own, the one I've cultivated, a Halloween oh, playlist. Oh, good. We could, Let's we link could that. create a, a Nightmarica Spotify playlist. We yeah. Work on that. Send us your recommendations. And I like that. I like that a lot. Well, I'm, I'm kind of in a similar mode, definitely into all the spooky stuff. I'm always into the spooky stuff. Yeah. It's the job. It's actually, yeah, it's part of my life. What am I talking about? It's a 24 seven <laughs> deal, but I do revisit certain Halloween themed movies. So that's kind of what I've been doing. And I have to say, I've talked about the Shutter mm-hmm. horror streaming service before, and I just want to give another shout out to them. But to kick things off, I'm just going through and watching episodes of Creep Show, which is an anthology horror series, as well as the the Creep Show movie. And so I'm I'm getting into all of my Halloween rewatches right now and I'll be talking about I'll be talking about what Halloween themed movie I'm into each week as we go forward. I love throughout it. This, so. so, okay. Well, we came in long with this, but I think that it was a bloody good time. I think we really <gasps> sank our teeth into the topic. Ew. And I'm so excited I... that next week will not be vampires. <laughs> <laughs> oh did i not tell you this is a two-part episode i actually did i actually i with all this research and all the vampire lore i did think about we could we should talk about oh my god no uh, two-part okay i can talk about girls being murdered all day long but for some reason drinking blood just so creeps me out well at least you have standards i guess <laughs> the yeah well okay so then i guess we will not be st- we will not stake out more vampire stories. Tune in the Patreon for next more. Week. Yeah, check that out. Well, I'll I'll continue with the vampire puns on the Patreon minisode. Yeah, and speaking of Patreon, we need to give a shout out to one of our newer fifteen dollars subscribers, Amy Birch. 
Um, this is a little late coming. Sorry, Amy. Um, but thank you for being a supporter. Thank you, Amy. We love you. We love all of our supporters and for subscribers. Sure. And, and anyone just listening randomly. You're we like great. you too. Yeah. I don't know if we're at love, no, love yet, if you're love just yet. listening. But subscribe. And then, <laughs> then we're getting to love. So uh, thanks for joining us for this kind of kickoff of the Halloween season. It's our first Halloween, Britt. I know. This is exciting. I mean, together as a podcast. I've yeah. had I've had I've had a few Halloweens already, but you've had eight hundred Halloweens before this, but Yes, I am actually an eight hundred year old vampire. Yeah. If you like Nightmerica, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash nightmerica and consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Give us a follow on social media and share this with your friends. And if you'd like to share your paranormal stories or even seek paranormal advice, which is for entertainment purposes only, email nightmericashow at gmail.com. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.